0: What's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of Greenhouse Sass. I'm Karan. I'm here with Sandra and James. Hello. I'm here. How's <laughs> it? And today we are here with Sochil Claire or Sochi. Hello. Sochi is a marine biologist performing artist who has formerly worked at UCSD's Scripps Institute of Oceanography and UC Santa Cruz Institute of Marine Sciences. She has started a number of theater productions, most recently playing the role of Angela Davis in Anadavir Smith's Fires in the Mirror. She's currently a PhD candidate at UCSB's Marine Science Institute, where she studies how ocean warming affects important fishery species. However, she also studies theater and education in the goal of better communicating her scientific findings to the widest array of people possible, including dummies like us. So what's up, Sochi? Thanks for coming on.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. I've been a follower of your podcast from the very very beginning and it's just an honor to be a part of your show
0: it's an honor to hear that
2: welcome (laughs) for being on our show
0: (laughs) how do you spell your name your name starts with an x right
1: yes it's spelled x-o-c-h-i-t-l and it's nahuatl it's a mayan name
0: that is so cool thank you (laughs) and it means
1: it means flower goddess whoa yeah it's a it's a hefty title
0: (laughs) yeah yeah you're living up to it though that's good good for you those are big shoes
1: yeah your name I've actually just realized Sandro is really beautiful as well
0: oh thanks do you know what it means
1: no tell me
0: it means protector of man. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> no. Also, I think of a does. less fitting name for you. <laughs> for a reference to our audience, Sandro's actual name is Alessandro. Yeah, there you go. But this episode is not about me, Sochi. Let's get back to you. <laughs> yeah, so can you elaborate a little more on, I guess, that intro, which is a, a pretty heavy intro right there? Uh, how would you describe your current pursuits, both academic and otherwise?
1: Yes, yeah, so when most people hear that I'm a marine biologist and a performing artist, they're very confused. First, they wanna know where do I have the time? And also B, how do those two things relate?
2: Where do you have the time? It's, it sounds <laughs> like you're on the cast of like SpongeBob SquarePants or something. <laughs> oh,
1: exactly. I think that's what people might think, right? Because already marine biology is such a, a job that the average person just doesn't really, under, you know what does a marine biologist actually do? It can be such a wide range of things. And especially now, since we do have climate change issues that are affecting daily livelihoods, there's a place for marine biologists to be at the forefront of climate change solution making, which is what I do. So my PhD, my dissertation is completely focused on doing something called ecophysiology, which is looking at the eco, the ecology and the physiology of things that we eat to hopefully give some information to ecosystem managers on how we can fish sustainably. That's the marine biology side. The theater arts side, the storytelling side is the part that brings us together to be able to take that science that I do in the lab out to the real world, out for people to engage with. So that's how I would unpack that intro.
0: (laughs) I just want to hear you talk for an hour. I don't want to ask questions. (laughs) Honestly, like we don't even need to talk. I feel like if I start talking after that, it's like, oh God. But cool. So can you give us a little more like specifics and like, how are you merging these two? Most people think of them as separate worlds. Like if like someone is a scientist and they're a musician, for instance, those are two separate things. So how are you merging? You mentioned that the theater angle or the performing arts angle is kind of this way of sharing this information, sharing the story of, of your research to um, broader audiences. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure. I was told by one of my theater arts professors at University of California, Santa Cruz, that theater is the mirror that we hold up to ourselves to then hold to the world. That sounds very out there so let me just break that down for a second (laughs) theater naturally fits in into the storytelling of livelihoods at sea fishing and our maritime communities especially here in santa barbara because in order for us to understand how climate change is going to affect marine organisms we need to understand our relationship to it going back to the mirror Theater allows us to put that mirror up to ourselves and see that relationship firsthand. So how am I merging these things? (laughs) I spend a lot of time talking to people and building that relationship and showing them what I do firsthand, whether it's not, whether or not it's over Zoom at a local aquarium or actually physically going down to the dock. And talking to fishermen and figuring out how my science fits in with their lives. And that's what theater is. So if we can capture that, that bit of how we all connect to our marine world and share it with others, that's storytelling. And that's what I do.
0: What what is so okay? It sounds like you try to communicate your science that you do in your lab as part of your PhD in a lot of different ways. Have you found that one way is more effective than another or like that you are drawn to one particular way of communicating your work?
1: Yes. So yes and no. Right. Ooh. So in the same way that I tackle climate change research questions is the same way that I tackle telling a story. If we're going to figure out how, say, the Kellett's Walk, the study species that I study, is doing in the face of ocean warming, Kind of like being a doctor, you got a whole list of assays, a whole different bits of different kinds of scientific treatments or assessments you might do to see how the animal is doing, to see how the fishery might do. It's a it's a triage, if you will. You you deal with the task with the most appropriate tool. Likewise, for storytelling, I find that there are a lot of different ways that you can get people to feel involved and immersed in the stories of fisheries biology. So I tackle that through theater, which is live performance. The way that I'm doing that now is actually holding up a Zoom pane to kids in a classroom and telling an actual story about my research to them. So yes. So it's like a multimedia. It's a suite of different things. Zoom, theater, public speaking, film, social media. It depends on the audience. Maybe if the audience is a, you know, brand kind of a donor, maybe we have like a symposium. So I direct symposiums as well. Or if the audience is high schoolers. I've started to dabble in TikTok. So I think that you have a triage of things that you do to, to reach the people that you're trying to reach.
0: So you brought this up, but you do a lot of work with kids of all ages, like really little kids and older ones, high school, even undergrad level. And this touches on a point you, you started, you started bringing up, which is relationships, right? So I think a lot of us in the science or STEM world, relationships to us like yeah we don't want to talk to people you know talking to people makes us scared um (laughs) let's reflect on our relationship with our parents (laughs) yeah please (laughs) no however that seems like at least half of what you do you know you are working at the reef at UCSB like the aquarium there and you're frequently on zoom talking to children showing them different animals and like kind of telling them story at the same time you have these relationships with the fishermen down at the harbor. Of course, a very different audience than school children. And at the same time, you're also talking with NGOs, and nonprofits internationally in places like Belize and Jamaica and Baja, question mark. Yes. Um, Baja, <laughs> California, and Mexico. And these are all, I would assume, very different audiences. So honestly, I just got lost in that question because that's
2: really cool. <laughs> Can we maybe talk a little bit about like what you want to talk to them about? curious about what you feel like they need they you want to tell them or what narrative you want to pitch
1: that's that's really interesting because everybody looks at networking that way what am i pitching how am i selling myself aka what am i getting
2: well i don't think it, it just sounds like when you say you're like an environmental communicator you're like you have right. like a message you want to communicate
1: exactly and i interestingly enough that's like the complete opposite you of how i tackle things usually I'm coming into a space wanting to learn something. I'm looking at myself as a bearer of knowledge, but also, wow, there's just so much I don't know. So when I sit at the table across from somebody who is running an NGO in Baja, I can only imagine, I start to actually physically, this is probably where a lot of my theater aptitude comes in. What is their seat like? What is their office like? What is their day-to-day like? And before you know it we have a relationship because i'm asking them these questions because i have genuine interest in how their lives are going and it sounds so simple but i guess they say the reason you know common sense isn't all that common right mm-hmm. common sense tells you that especially when build a relationship <laughs> you should actually care about the person sitting aside for, you know in front of you That's but debatable. we look at networking and <laughs> We look at networking and we look at science communication as this one-way street, as if I'm the center of attention, I'm g- garnering all this attention, thereby somebody else's existence. And so to answer your question, how do I connect to people? I simply just want to know about them. Kind of like, uh, what's it called? Um, it's like the
0: Anthony Bourdain of marine biology. <laughs> you just need to sit yeah. down and eat, eat their food. sit down they're telling you everything
1: though i do a lot of informational interviews and i now that there's a term for it it kind of feels worse (laughs) (laughs) because initially it was well i am 14 and i learned about an oil spill and how else am i going to learn about an oil spill Aside from actually talking to the person that I see on CNN right now going and doing the science for it. and I tell I'm telling you that's how I became a marine biologist. I actually went and found this person's email. okay, they didn't respond next person. I emailed over twenty five people at the age of fourteen, I think or even younger, just to learn about oil spills.
0: You don't want to know what I was doing at 14. What made you you know they you spoiling something?
1: That's relationship building, and one out of those twenty five responded. I'm still in touch with them today, and have made so many. I mean, friends, honestly, mentors, honestly, along the way, and have learned so much. And I think that's just something that I continue to do. I just want to know. First question is why are Why is this your job? You know, um, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? How did you come into it? And people. I think are just, especially in science, dying for that, dying to really tell their story. And before you know it, I'm like little mini Oprah running around. I have notebooks on (laughs) notebooks on these conversations before you could like zoom and write your notes while someone was talking. And I'm just scrolling down like stories and stories and stories and stories. And so that's where I guess storytelling comes from collecting stories. And that's what I started doing from the very beginning. And I do think that um, it was particularly difficult for me to see myself as a marine biologist, considering there were no people that looked like me doing marine biology. And if you listen to a lot of the doom and gloom about feeling isolated, imposter syndrome, all those different things, it can be very, very dissuading. And What was the through line is as much as I heard those horror stories, I had a real person, a real face, a real voice that I connected with at some point in my life that told me, yes, you can. And that is that like pushed all the horror stories away, all the doom and gloom, all the things that said, well, this is going to be difficult. It was worth it because I had made a connection with someone who was real and who felt like a relationship with me was worth it. So why not keep going?
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm really fascinated by the intersection of art and science. And I, I think it's a really important place for us to go. Like the, you know, the the conversation around the environment, I think it, it should go in that direction. So that these well-rounded solutions can kind of sprout and we can like, you know, bring together smartest minds in different areas. But I think a lot of people like don't, myself included to some extent, don't really understand like what what exactly does, like who is an environmental communicator? Like where do you get a job as an environmental communicator? So where, where do you see yourself doing this type of work? And also who's like, who's one of your favorite environmental communicators?
1: Right now, um, I'll answer the question by describing the job that I want and also through the job of somebody who is A mentor of mine, uh, Danny Washington. She is a fantastic science communicator. She is the first Black woman to host an environmental TV show. And she's not over 50, which tells you a (laughs) lot about how we're doing. Um, But um, that being said, that a lot of what she shares is about creating your own space we are starting to slowly realize the value of science communication as we realize that every single person, scientist or not needs to know about climate change issues. So it's going to be an up and coming area where many people will actually not know what to do with you. So that's where the entrepreneurship comes in. That's Mm. where knowing what you want and the change you want to create through your science communication, the, more solidified you are in that, the better you can say, well, hey, um, small bank in my town, uh, I would love to be a science communicator for you. And here's how I see how I could serve you. And here's who I am. And here's what I do best, right? So a lot of no's, but yet being very clear about what, you, what your role is and the change that you're trying to impact and to whom, to which audience The stronger that you are in that, the stronger an entrepreneur you can be about in space. And that's so that's kind of what I do. And I believe in not waiting for someone to notice you. You do need to just step up and notice me. (laughs) Yeah, you need to step up and make your own thing like you guys are doing. You guys have a podcast. It takes a lot of courage and there's plenty of people who have great ideas (laughs) But
0: we are
2: very courageous men. Yeah. People like us to change the world.
1: See, that's the problem. We have this metric as to, we have this metric (laughs) as to what means that what you're doing is substantial. And that I'm just saying, doesn't mean much because if say little Zochi, is listening to you talk about X thing and it resonates with me more. I'm developing a relationship with your platform. That relationship will help me push through all the negativity that's gonna come through my way as I'm trying to become an environmentalist. So we as science communicators are developing relationships just by doing what we do. And that is really powerful. Um, So I always have to pat myself on the back, even if the views aren't where I want them to be, or maybe I didn't articulate things perfectly that one time. Um, It is difficult, but I do think that there's going to be more and more demand. But from people who don't even know, it's almost like, oh, I know we need to communicate science. Oh my God, just come on in. But they're not going to have an outline for you as to what your job is they're just going to think, oh, so you're going to manage your Instagram and you're going to say, well, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that's the thing when, when you're looking for, let's say like a job or a career opportunity, you're already the kind of person who you're not conventional to say the least. So of course it, it's in line then that you would just have to make your own role in this, like Danny Washington, she kind of made her own niche. Like she didn't wait around for the specific job opportunity to come up that she would fit into. Also, side note, I do like how we start off interviewing you about your work, and it turned into a little pep talk for us. Like, chin up, chin up, <laughs> yeah. boys. You can do this. But one thing I, I do agree with is this. We have a communication problem. We, as in like the science scientific community, um, have this problem with communication. That's why you see so much misinformation take hold, not just in climate change, but, you know, with, with COVID and so many other things. And we're missing that like human element, that human storytelling, right? When we talk about climate change, people are talking about the polar bears or the penguins or whatever, which is sad. Like, you know, that picture of the polar bear standing alone, like on like a ice, a piece of ice in the middle of the ocean. That's sad. That in itself is storytelling. But what really drives the clicks and what really drives the attention is like, the town that's like polluted by coal ash, um, and they've lost their jobs because the coal industry is like terrible, you know. And the, in talking to those folks, like judgment free zone type of thing, you know, like that's what gets more attention. Like a rural community in like Uganda that has like solar resiliency hubs that's like really cool, for instance. Um, and talk to those folks. So I do like that you are bringing in that angle. It's called STEAM, right? It's not STEM. It's steam. It's
1: called steam because the A means art.
0: Yay.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if you heard a little sass in my voice, but <laughs> I, I do.
0: We need more of it.
1: Has. Seriously, I know you guys asked. I think it was you. Guys do hot takes. Is that right? You yes. Do- yes. Oh, we, we, do yeah. Yeah. we do
0: hot takes late on us.
1: Okay. Hot take. We always talk about art and science and we think that that's supposed to mean like someone reading a poem of the earth burning and like me in a black leotard like spinning in circles in <laughs> metaphor of the earth burning and that's steam right <laughs> I think uh one of my colleagues actually added an h in there which is for history and at first I was like oh my god we're adding another letter to the acronym." <laughs> that's annoying steam,
2: huh? <laughs>
1: <Steam>. <laughs> however if we take ourselves back in time, art was in service of science, science in service of art, meaning a lot of our ecological understanding, hieroglyphics, mythology. We know that astronomy was strictly founded on people looking at the stars, not really knowing what was up there and just writing down their thoughts. Whether or not it was grounded in science, they drew these fantastical pictures that then inspired the science that we have now today to fill in those blanks. So Hmm. the H and the A are connected in the STEAM, and maybe we don't need to look that far to see art and science working together it's all around us Um, we express ourselves through creative means and so whenever I think about okay how am I going to do an art and science project with this group of students I immediately go to like well how are they expressing themselves how do they talk to each other and that's the way that we can pull the art and the science out of day-to-day experiences because it's already there
0: so, what do you think is going to be the last discipline to make the the acronym the super long acronym that we're building here?
1: Well, I mean, we already have another M. I think for medicines. So. Wait, is it, maybe
2: is it forensics medicine? for all the dead humans of climate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, medicine's already science, though, is it not? Well, and I'm not a medical. Person.
1: Theoretically, medicine is like the practitioner, right, versus the research.
0: Mm. But there's already an M for math, so it'd be steamum. <laughs>
1: yes, that's exactly it, with an H.
0: M-steam. M-steam. Okay, um, well, hold up. We we really jumped into the the theater and communication side of it, which is awesome. but We're definitely a science podcast first. And you are a PhD it, at the Marine Science Institute at UCSB. So and you mentioned earlier that you do some work with well, I know it's snails, but you, you mentioned the scientific name of them.
1: Yes, they're called the Kellets Welk, or I'm sure it's, I'm butchering it, which I shouldn't. Kaledi, <laughs> I Ooh, think I butchered
0: it. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> I butchered so what, every time. So what do you do with the because,
1: snails? I butchered every time because I can't believe how fun it sounds. <laughs> Kaledia. I do like that. I'm sorry. What were yeah, you saying? What, what do you no, do just, with the snails? Oh. Well, uh, I myself am a banana slug alumni, so it's Ooh. not surprising.
2: Is that UC Santa Cruz?
1: Yes. So it's not surprising that I ended up studying some kind of mollusk for my PhD.
0: It was <laughs> Have you just ever touched an- one? They're so gross and sticky.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she, she loves it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so as you can tell, it was an added bonus that yeah. I got to study snails. Why else should we care about snails? I think that we forget um, because we have such a Western palate that around the world, people eat a lot of different things from sea cucumber, which are these little fat, bulbousy, squishy invertebrates, all the way down to squid and our mollusks are sea snails. And we actually here in Santa Barbara started eating Kellett's whelk. About five years ago was when it, that fishery really picked up because we started getting new pallets moving into Santa Barbara and more and more people started eating them. And the the thing is, it's like, wow, that's, that's really great for the fishermen because they get to diversify after the big marine heat wave, the blob, as they call it, the warm water blob.
2: When was the big marine heat wave?
1: That was 2014 to 2016.
2: can can you just explain what that was exactly
1: yes so just like we have heat waves on land we have heat waves in the water and they can last i think the official definition for a heat wave is lasting at least five days but as you can tell the warm water blob lasted from 2014 all the way to 2016 that's a very long time
0: (laughs) it's more than five days definitely more than five days wait how, how much warmer was the ocean
1: we see that so let, this is where my science brain is going to give you a couple asterisks that <laughs> the warming in very simple terms is like 1 to 2 degrees but it's more over how and when things warm if things are warming and picking up during the summer where the, there's already a natural cadence in warm warming then we see, you know, different kind of impacts as to whether or not it was happening in summer versus the winter. And so to summarize, this warm water blob really had a huge impact on not only little snails and things like that, but all the things at the very top of the food chain. Seals were starving. It was a very, very traumatic event for our ecosystem. Um, (laughs) Well, it was. However, we've learned a lot from that. We've learned a lot about what a marine heat wave can be. We have new definitions for this. And we in the science world have these definitions, but it was also interesting to see how fishermen responded to that. Fishermen in terms of, as I mentioned before, sometimes to be climate resilient, their businesses to be climate resilient have to diversify their portfolios. What that means is if I'm a crab fisherman, the boat that was passed down to me from my grandma, grandpa, grandpa's grandpa is outfitted to fish crab. That means my traps catch crab. Do I have experience catching whelks? No, but if the warm water blob makes it difficult for baby crabs to grow up and feed off of the kelp, then I might have to switch over to something else. And so that's why these climate change assessments are so important. We can look at the menu of species we fish here in Santa Barbara and start to see which species are more or less resilient to ocean warming and other climate change perturbations to then provide fishers this information, to provide managers information because managers and fishers, of course, are focusing on the things that are making money in the now. So when I first started my PhD and I was like, I'm really interested in this wealth that's recently being fished because I can potentially see how this might play a big role in what fishers can fish in five years. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife is saying, well, we can have limited resources and we can only focus on the things that we see are important and that are threatened now unless you can really show through your experiments that this is relevant for us to focus on. And so that's typically how a lot of management of different species work. It's very much like need basis, which species is making us a lot of money as, as a county and which species are also most affected and will cause economic domino effects later on.
0: Okay. So, I- I think I see what's happening here. You're basically putting together a marketing scheme to make everyone eat aquatic <laughs> snails. Are you getting that's a your goal? Kella's one. Claudia, <laughs> is that it? You're well, getting, you're getting it's kind cut.
1: of a little backwards, right? So people are already buying and fishing these guys, eating them salsa on top of your whelk for dinner. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually a recipe. please. <laughs> <laughs> <That> sounds
0: good. <laughs> Ceviche. If you just brand it a California escargot cargo, everyone will go for it. Yeah.
1: It's actually called the poor man's abalone, meaning you can't afford some abalone, well, here's some whelks because
2: they're
0: a <laughs> <laughs> second place prize.
1: Oh <laughs> um, like no, I haven't you're not wealthy,
2: it. you're welky. Oh, we'll <laughs> <get one. laughs>
1: no, I haven't had it yet, but I guess going back to will we be eating the Celts whelk? people are already eating the cowlks walk. It's just about doing the science to help fishers decide, well, should I put all my energy into swapping my crab boat outfit? You know, my, my get up and go from crab to get up and go for welks. Um, is it worth it? Tell me please. So I don't spend a lot of money on buying new gear.
0: So when you say that it's about doing the science to help these, these fishers, what does that entail? So like, what is like your nitty-gritty like your PhD research in the lab doing with with these snails and like how is ocean warming affecting them and of course you don't have to share too much because you haven't like published your dissertation yet so we don't want to put you on blast before you're actually done but just whatever you're willing to share.
1: Yeah so I was actually really excited to find that the kind of work that I'm doing assessing thermal tolerance of uh, marine organisms at the early stages, so I pretty much look at the early stage baby whelks, if you will, uh, to see how they will do in terms of what we see as a future marine heat wave. Um, so the Kellet's whelk they do undergo this really unique development of four weeks. The whelks get randy in April. They take about three days.
2: Wait, sorry, they get randy.
1: Yeah, they do. What,
2: wait, what is? so what they is get horny? Mean? Oh yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. oh randy oh, is yeah. co is that is that a TikTok word? Randy. <laughs> is that's that a snail word, name? dude. Snail is, is that an actual scientific word?
1: It's kind of no.
2: <laughs> it's, it's a slang. I've never heard that ever. I know what I is, is the scientific of, word for that. I I don't know anyone named Randy, but I don't imagine he's like a frisky fellow. Oh
1: <laughs> yes, frisky. So they kind of <laughs> copulate. They have a three-day love sesh.
0: Wait, um, what? They are you
2: serious?
1: Yes. No. Is that pretty
2: common in the animal kingdom? Like you, it's not it's a It's pretty one common
1: for snails. Oh my
0: percent. god. Oh, yeah. I, I want to be a snail. Sonder, <laughs> <laughs> you would never make it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we don't have kids listening to this podcast, also. You made me think about that earlier. Oh yeah, we might have kids listening oh, to this We need so to pull like I... a PG13 label or circle
1: <laughs> of life. I'm sure many
0: they all know what this imagine point. they hear it from us first <laughs> <laughs> what three days
1: <laughs> yeah so that's only for snails kids
2: <laughs> well generally, i mean it depends, yeah. Yeah, i don't know it depends on your.
1: and then afterwards they'll start to lay the females will start to lay like i think it's over a thousand capsules over the course of two days And in these little capsules are all the little baby snails like developing and growing for four weeks until they get let out into the water column. And that is actually the hottest time of year, the summer. So as you can probably doing the math, thinking about the warm water blob, if mama snail is laying eggs in April, they're developing over the course of May, June, July, right? And they come on out in the hottest time of year, despite how many folks are enjoying their pellets look at the market right now, it might be really important for us to know how they're going to do once they release from the capsule. And that's where I come in right now. I'm doing an experiment display at the reef, which means that all of my science is on display where we are ramping up and ramping down, kind of like a marine heat wave would, to be able to see, okay, from the time that mama snail is laying eggs to the time that the babies are being released, how does that, mar- that temperature affect their development, their growth and their ability to re-enter the world as eventually adult snails?
0: That is really, really cool.
1: Thank you
2: what happens to them is are they
1: well so this is the really crazy part our lab is focusing on something called epigenetics or transgenerational plasticity which basically takes everything that we thought we knew about evolution and kind of just throws it that might be the biggest word
0: that's ever been said (laughs) on this podcast transgenerational Plasticity. plasticity Yeah, so let's yeah. break that down. Yeah, let's break it down, please.
1: Trans across or through generations. Say you are Sandro, you are daddy snail, and James, you are a mommy snail. Let's
0: go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so jeez Sandra, what you you're getting our vibe.
2: <laughs> What's the snail noise? I don't even know how to cheer.
1: <laughs> oh boy. <Meow>. And, <laughs> and both of you guys. Are coming into adulthood, aka you are going through gametogenesis. The
0: birds and the bees, gametes
1: are blooming. Okay. During a marine heat wave. The question that transgenerational plasticity asks, maybe your parents would not have been able to withstand a marine heat wave at all. But because you guys made it through. And your gametes are ready to go. Does that mean over the course of multiple generations, you might pass down resilience to marine heat wave temperatures? That, in Whoa. fact, has been observed okay, in wow. some invertebrates.
2: Like, wow. So, yes. guess, isn't that how evolution in general like seems to work? Like the one, it's like the strong do survive.
1: Yes, but the couches that might take a million years.
0: <laughs> yeah, I- I was. I was hoping, this is like within generations. So within this is one generation. Yeah, okay. I was hoping you lean more into like the backstory of the of me and James's you know snail history, <laughs> how but you guys met, you yeah. were high school sweethearts. And, you know, so one have, time at an Applebee's,
2: you saw that I, you know, oh
0: gosh, yes. got the same so, appetizer as you,
2: snail Applebee's, and you
0: feel the gametes coming on.
1: Exactly, yeah. and we oh. have James Sandro baby snails out in the world that maybe they're not doing super duper. <laughs> heat wave,
0: but, but they're they making can make it. it through. They're making like it. that's so like how millennials, do... basically. Yeah. Generations <laughs> of snails
2: would be like alive at one. Like, do like the snails meet their grandparents?
1: <laughs> oh, they actually do because these. <laughs> oh gosh, I know where you're going with this.
2: Uh, oh, no. Where I uh... going? <laughs> 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 they, they don't. I'm not saying they hook up with their grandparents. I'm not gonna.
0: Ask. We're heading into uncharted territory. No. Well.
1: Your question is, what's the lifespan, right? So whelks can live up to 23 years.
2: Wow. Oh okay. my gosh, that's a lot. Wow. Yes. I didn't, I thought I thought it was going to be like one, like two, like, you know, like mosquitoes or something like their cycles.
1: <laughs> no. And that's why it's super important that we know, okay. If in fact, old grandpa Sandro at age 23 in his snail whelk life has lived a full life spawning many generations of strong baby whales.
0: We're proud of you, Sandra. (laughs) Thank you. I did what I could. That
1: would be good to know, right? Because that means we've got about 23 years worth of generations that could potentially do okay during climate change scenarios. And so scientists like me are on the hunt for doing these assessments, doing these thermo tolerance trials to see what is that transgenerational relationship Two marine heat waves, and not just marine heat waves, but ocean acidification, oxygen minimum zones, all any climate change perturbation, pollution, microplastics. how does this transgenerational concept of a generation generational change or adaptation uh, to environmental conditions? What does that mean for all the things that we eat, for all the things that are very important in our environments?
0: This this almost sounds like breeding horses. Like people just try to find like the ultimate horse and then just pass down its gametes. Has anyone
2: ever done that with snails? They just want to find the alpha. Does anyone even the snails? The alpha yes. snail?
1: so not exactly with snails, but they're doing it with mollusks. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, so basically that means um, the green shell oyster, I believe. My mistake, the green shell mussel in New Zealand is huge. They've got an amazing, amazing facilities, just like how like we eat chicken. I mean, that's probably a bad comparison, but (laughs) or like steak, right? Imagine if we just climate change just kicked a boot and we could no longer have steak. That's how they feel about green shell mussels right now. And they decided, you know what? This is a governmental emergency, (laughs) We are going to build facilities where we do genetic engineering to try to create like strong muscles and put muscles in different stressful environments, get those gametes warmed up so we can have some really strong muscles that can withstand climate change conditions in the
0: future. So are these uh, oysters or not oysters, sorry, muscles, are they farmed? Or are they catching them in the wild?
1: So they will take wild seeded populations, bring them into the lab, warm up their gametes, <laughs> get them ready, and then they'll outplant them potentially back to see how they do against the marine heat wave coming up.
0: Okay. But like, but normally speaking, like, this isn't like a farmed species. Like, I know some oysters, they farm them like up in like Oregon and Washington. Yes. Like, and so these this, are a wild species that. Yes, they are wild danger. species. Okay.
1: But people are kind of doing this mixed kind of fisheries to aquaculture and back. We hear about finding the super corals. So this transgenerational plasticity thing applies not only to things that are sessile like mussels and corals, but definitely to fish, definitely to even reptiles. So it's kind of blowing our minds as scientists on a new path that we can pursue to prepare people for climate resilience, for their important species in their ecosystem.
0: I think it's really interesting that, I mean, amidst all the doom and gloom with climate change and, and species loss and things like, and things, all all this like really sad stuff. We're hearing about these crazy stories about like these species adapting, you know, not over like thousands or millions of years, but like generations. Like we were just talking about bacteria have evolved to eat microplastics. Like A couple months ago, I mean it's been going on for a few years now, but you know now we're looking potentially can these like mollusks and things like. Just adapt to warmer waters, of course that's not going to apply for it's not like all the crabs and corals and things like not everything is going to adapt, which is sad, but it is kind of like a glimmer of good news.
1: Oh, absolutely. And of course me being like super like, okay, cool. So does that mean that all snails will respond this way, that all crabs will respond this way, that all tortoises will respond this way? No, not necessarily. And that is why doing the science is so critical because if you had like 14 me's, we could all take on this clade of animals and somebody else could take on this clade of animals and we would have a lot more information. So as a person who's a environmentalist, I see the clock ticking. Sometimes I'm like, wow, I'm just like doing the science in the lab. All the world is burning. Is it really worth it? The answer is yes, because (laughs) it's going to inform how we can help communities. I know that um, the Swamish people near British Columbia, they're doing thermal tolerance trials just like I'm doing here at UCSB on their oysters, on their clams, you know, just to really be ready because not only is it an economic source, for many people, the ecosystem also means more than that. It's a source of culture and community. And to see these animals go, it it really has a cultural impact too. So it's kind of heartwarming to know that there is still hope, there are these heroes out there, these little tiny critters out there that could be making a difference. We just need to know their stories. And that kind of brings it back home for me because in my next steps, while, you know, for us here at UCSB, we're pushing the next, we're trying to do transitional plasticity. Let's see what happens in the second generation, the third, the fourth generation. That's where we are here in California, you know, But as soon as you move to places that have a lot less university power, a lot less academic and scientific infrastructure, it becomes, well, we actually don't really even know how long that snail takes to develop into an adult. So in order for you to do this climate change assessment that you're very interested in, there's so many different things that we have no idea, right? So this kind of science that i'm talking about while it is where our field is now is revolutionary if you take it to a place where there's so much need like jamaica belize the caribbean where my family is from and the ocean is such a huge part of being in a coastal country as i mentioned before culture culturally all you hear about is the ocean whether it's good or bad Um, It's in the folktales. It's it's everything. And I find that when I talk with NGOs in this sector of the world, people don't need an explanation as to why this science matters. They just want you to get on over and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I'm very excited to be in my next steps moving forward in that direction, whether it's in the Caribbean or it's in Baja or Central America, to be Able to provide this level of science that I know will be instrumental for these communities to even thrive, right? So we look at our Dungeness crab, our salmon, all the things we eat here in Santa Barbara, our uni, our urchins, and everything. It's a delicacy. Whereas in Central America, it's like, well, you know, French Polynesia, well, you know, this is dinner. <laughs> This is what we eat. And if it's gonna actually not be here in a couple of years, we're gonna need to know that. And if it's going to thrive, we need to know that too. So we can plan. And so that's the kind of science that I'm hoping to do next. And I think it'll be super special because I'll be giving back to kind of where my heritage is. Um, it'll also fit very strongly in the stories that I'm very interested in telling. As I mentioned before, art and science, that H and that A in steam and telling the history and telling the culture and also providing a light of hope in a place that might need it.
0: Yeah. And I was about to say like that's where this interdisciplinary approach ties in because you want to connect with these people. You can't just come in as like an American or as this California researcher or whatever and like I'm going to do the science like to get the optimal that's such a scientific way of saying it, but to get the optimal results for everyone involved. You have to connect with these folks, you know, like see kind of like the lives of these, like let's say Caribbean fishermen or like Mexican fishermen, fishers. Sorry, dude. Um,
2: yeah, I don't so know. Yeah. I think
0: people love being talked down to and lectured.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. See, and there's so much that goes into intentional and inclusive language. Right now, that is the buzzword of the world, and we're all working on it. There's no way to do it perfectly. There are a lot of people that started thinking about this way before pop culture did. And they've written books. They've got so much scholarly work out there on what it means to be intentional, how to be inclusive in these kinds of conversations and communicate your science. And I have been so um, fortunate to read the scholarly work of people who do social ecological projects where they meaningfully connect with communities. And that's, I think, where we need to start. Um, I always go into the room asking what is a need right now? I assume I have no knowledge about that. I can read whatever I can read, but that doesn't really actually count Um, as true knowledge. When I say knowledge, I mean a deep-rooted sense, right? So maybe I've read that there is a tragedy of the comments in Baja in terms of fisheries. Have I seen it? No. Meaning, do I have someone in my life that is impacted by that? No. And so when I say I've done my little homework, I've read, but I don't know. And I think that's the, I know it's, it's just difficult, but it's very important to kind of, I think, walk in a room and this is just in the context of fisheries, but we've been talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think this kind of applies where we have all these buzzwords now. It almost might be overcomplicating the situation when it's this a very a simple thing, which is walking in assuming just like you should always when you meet someone, despite what their background is, but you don't know anything about them and you're there to learn about each other.
0: So basically, the opposite of like an internet commenter on like a news article, <laughs> <You> <laughs>
1: suddenly much. knows like yeah. the entire
0: Ukraine-Russia crisis. <laughs>
1: and even I would, oh gosh, don't get started on that. But um, and even I would, I would wager, you know, sometimes you'll read a tile on the internet about how to interact with someone from a certain racial group or background or gender identity. Almost that might be too prescriptive, in a way, right? so maybe it's best to throw all these different structures these manuals out the window and just show up and show up wanting to build a relationship and i think if that's the positive intent from where you're coming from everything else will follow and yeah
0: it's yeah. fantastic awesome i guess on <laughs> thanks that for tying note, it together for us <laughs> yeah. basically did our jobs for us um But on that note, I guess we can wrap it up. Thank you so much, Sochi, for your very inspiring words on connecting these two universes together, which, as you made clear, they shouldn't be two universes at all. They are one universe. And do you have any final comments you want to share with us or our audience?
1: Oh, yeah. I should just (laughs) say that... I'll be doing some very exciting things soon, and then if you want to learn more about, it,
0: <laughs> yeah, give the plug, give the plug. Um, Tell
1: us where I'm, you're gonna I'm be really hunting snails,
0: uh, <laughs> Send the pin.
1: So I'll be um, collaborating with some great groups, uh, Ocean X and the Smithsonian, Ooh. in the upcoming months. And it's been always a dream of mine to work with groups like Ocean X, Smithsonian, etc., and. I'm just happy to share that journey. So you can follow on Instagram at Sochi Claire as my handle. And I'm always very responsive to folks who DM me since I'm always that person who randomly DMs someone and never gets a reply. I <laughs> reply. So feel free to reach out and I'm happy to share and talk more.
0: And we'll include her handle in our episode description so you can check it out. All right, our first First non-brand guest. Thank hey, hey, you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for sharing, Sochi. This is amazing. Yeah. Stay sassy. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, this is Karan. Thanks for tuning in. We do this show because we genuinely care about these environmental issues and climate change and want to do our part to increase public understanding of them. If you like the pod and want to help us out, feel free to leave a rating and hit subscribe on whatever platform you're using, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and so on. Feel free to share the podcast out on your social media, and even just tell your friends, family, coworkers, whoever you think would really enjoy this kind of content or just really needs to hear this kind of content. Thanks, y'all. Stay sassy.